You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. As the intro indicated, this is the very first episode of Season 2. And I can tell you I am 110% stoked about this season. I have queued up already three unbelievable interviews that I'm so excited to share with you. And there's truly no better way to kick off 2017 than with these guests. It's all going to start off with this episode, which I'm going to uh, uh, be sharing with you shortly here, a phenomenal interview I did with Richard Kurland. Richard Kurland is one of the preeminent immigration lawyers uh, across the country, and I think he is probably one of the most recognizable and really a lawyer who has done more, I think, than any others to shape the direction of Canadian immigration law and policy in this country. His resume is replete with just how much he has done, um, you know, largely on a pro bono capacity um, to to meet with government officials, to, uh, you know, he just literally has become one of those people that if you have a question about the direction immigration policy should take in this country, ask Richard. And uh, it was just an amazing pleasure for me to have him on. Um, This interview that I'm going to be covering with Richard uh, is a little bit of a different take. Instead of staying very high level at the 10,000 level and and get Richard to prognosticate on what the future of immigration is going to look like in 2017, instead we flipped it around and we talked about one of the topics that I have, you know, that has gotten more hits on the Canadian Immigration Podcast um, on the website than any other. And that is what to do when your immigration application is refused. I did a blog on it, I pr- and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and uh, I, I shared how to, to do the ATIP request to get your visa office file notes if your application is refused. I had a few other little tips and strategies built into that blog post that, like I said, I'll, I'll provide a link to uh, within this podcast show notes. But this episode is is awesome. It is going to be fantastic. I know you'll love it. As I listen to the interview again, and, and now I'm, I'm just recording this on January the 6th, I'm going to try and release this uh, today. But this episode was recorded uh, back at the tail end of December, right, right before Christmas. And oh my goodness, it, it was phenomenal. Um, so welcome back to the, the podcast with uh, a thunderous episode. Um, it's entertaining. It is informative. Um, it's just great to, to just get to get to know Richard a little bit better. Um, I have the utmost respect for him, and I just can't speak enough about how awesome he is. And he really brought it with this interview. So uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. 
I want to thank all those who have continued to visit the site, to subscribe to the podcast. We're clearing 3,000 downloads um, a month now, which is wonderful. Uh, I want to thank those who've left reviews and ratings on iTunes because that helps the podcast to get out to more viewers and, and just get to the, uh, uh, be brought to the attention of more people that are interested in, in listening to the podcast. Um, there's been a few changes within my, within my firm. Um, I am shifting away from, from Holty Tillman and, and, uh, I've got some changes that I'm going to be announcing here, uh, in the upcoming future. I'm excited about that. Uh, it seems like one thing that is, has been constant within my professional practice and my life is change. And, uh, and so that I'll, I'll share a little bit more insight on, on what's been happening in, in my life and bring a little bit more personality back into the podcast. Um, I absolutely love the interviews that I've done. I love the fact that lawyers have come on and shared so much wonderful insight. I think I'm going to reserve a few podcasts just to, to, to get back to uh, some of the monologues and my feelings on um, what's happened with this crazy world of, of Canadian immigration. But with all of that being said, um, I really want to, to get right into this interview with Richard Kurland. Uh, I know you'll love it. I know you'll share it with people, whether you're an immigration lawyer, a consultant, whether you are an individual applicant who has recently dealt with a refused application, uh, Richard goes straight top to bottom, all of the options that are available to you, including some unbelievably practical insight and strategy on dealing with this most painful issue that, that our clients, as well as us as, as representatives, face getting that dreaded refusal letter from uh, from IRCC. So without further ado, let's jump to this awesome interview with Richard Kurland. I'm here with Richard Kurland, a policy analyst and lawyer. Uh, welcome, Richard. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great to have you join us on the Canadian Immigration Podcast um, I've asked Richard to come on, and he's he's indicated that he um, is fully prepared to share some direction and guidance on probably one of the most common inquiries I get, and I'm sure many other lawyers get as well, and that is, what do you do when your Canadian immigration application is refused? And uh, I can speak from experience, Richard, that I've got the, the website that's associated with this podcast um, probably about six months back, I did a little blog on how to request um, the visa office notes do it, to do an ATIP request. And I, you know, attached screenshots and basically walked people through the process. And of all the blogs that I've done, that one probably gets 200 visits a day. And, uh, and so this topic, I can almost guarantee, is going to be one of the most popular podcast that we're going to do here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. So thanks so much for, for coming and joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Now, Richard, uh, I know he's, uh, he's quite humble and he probably won't like me saying this, but he's quite a legend in the, uh, in the world of Canadian immigration law. And, and uh, you know, as the introduction said, a policy analyst and lawyer. And uh, I don't know which one you would rank first, uh, policy <laughs> analyst or, or lawyer, but um, uh, your your reputation definitely precedes you. So I, I'm like I said, I'm delighted to have you join me. Uh, do you mind if I take a few moments here just to give a little overview for some of the listeners who um, may not swim in the in the uh, the pools of immigration in Canada and might be listening in um, uh, from from some yonder location? 
Sure, I'll just drink from the cup of embarrassment while you do that. <laughs> Sounds good. So Richard is um, involved in just a ton of things. Obviously, policy analyst, that title is there for a reason. Um, he's a frequent commentator on immigration policy issues within the media. And when I say media, we're talking television, newspaper, radio, everything from The Economist, Wall Street Journal, CBC, CTV, just a whole gambit, New York Times. And so he's a frequent commentator on immigration policy issues um, within media. Uh, he also has a number of government-related roles. And uh, currently, and you can correct me, Richard, if I'm wrong here, um, you're currently acting as a special advisor to the Office of the Auditor General of Canada, and that's International Affairs and Immigration, since June of this year to present. How did that come about? Well, that, that was just a part-time gig for a few hours to have a discussion uh, in Ottawa. It, it's, um, it's just one of those things. The government saves a lot of money. Instead of sending investigative teams out into the field, all you do is rustle up the old men in the village, <laughs> sit down, have a coffee, discuss for a few hours what's uh, going right, and uh, that's about it. Um, it's not something you apply for, uh, and there's no public competition. Out of the blue, you get a call to uh, take a plane to Ottawa. It's no biggie, but um, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun, and it's quite uh, impressive to see such high-caliber talent, sophistication, uh, background at the Auditor General's office. It's, uh, it's just one of those honorifics uh, that, uh, frankly, uh, are, uh, are uh, <laughs> overwhelming, at least for me. Uh, but that I think that ship is now sailed. I, I think uh, what what uh, what had to be said was said, and on a moving forward basis, I think uh, the strategic plan for um, international affairs slash immigration is uh, is is the right uh, plan for Canada. Awesome, that's that's really cool, and I, I know you've also spent some time um, in the House of Commons uh, with the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration. My goodness, that's that has been uh, an honor and a privilege for all those years. I, I think it's more than twenty years now, in providing nonpartisan, objective uh, advice uh, uh, to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration when when invited as an individual, uh, and and it, it's it's astounding. You 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 become a, a part of the lawmaking process of Canada. Uh, every word you say is uh, recorded for posterity in Hansard. Uh, the, the delight is in being able to work uh, with the members of parliament representing every federal political party uh, that's elected to the House of Commons consistently over time. Uh, and and it's a it's a true joy, professional joy, to be able to make a contribution in that manner to the development of law and policy. That that is really neat. You know, it's it's the, I think the best thing in the world for a person is to be able to find something that they're passionate about. And I think generally speaking, most of us immigration lawyers, when we started immigration, <laughs> it yeah. was it was something that we really had a passion for. And yes, it still burns. Uh, it burns brightly inside of me, but. Um, you know, to have something that you're really passionate about, it's no longer work. It's, you know, like you said, it's just fun. It's just tremendously enjoyable yeah. to be a part of something that's just greater than yourself and to, to have the ability to influence um, just the direction our, our entire uh, country is, is taking mm -hmm. with respect to immigration matters. So that's wonderful. Mm. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, also the, the the driving force is helping others, uh, and and if that's not what leads you into the field of immigration, it's certainly the prime reason why you remain in the field of immigration. There's nothing like helping a fellow human uh, uh, during a time of crisis, need, uh, and the the people never forget what you've done for them. Uh, and and so it's certainly not the cash. The immigration bar is among <laughs> the most impoverished in law in Canada. But at the end of that journey, when you're staring at the w window hoping it's going to be jello day uh, and reflect backwards in time, that's when you truly may realize the value of years gone by. Uh, and um, fortunately, most in the immigration bar have opted for heart over wallet. And I think that's the passionate choice, uh, to, to borrow some of your phrase. Yeah, awesome. Now, you've kind of led into this a little bit, but um, I ask all of my guests, and I, I can see that the driving force behind you is is genuinely to to just make people's lives better and to help them and and real desperate circumstances, which is really the foundation of what we're going to talk about today. But how, of all of the various areas of law you could have pursued, how did you settle on immigration? Yeah, well, after uh, after I was able to pass first-year law, <laughs> uh, I realized that there was a possibility of graduating. <laughs> And that led to the next stage of, uh, what am I going to do to support myself? And so I thought not having a trust fund, not having any uh, <laughs> relations uh, in law, uh, no judges or lawyers in the family, uh, I'd have to hit the ground running. And uh, I thought, all right, I have to prepare now. And that left three areas of law as a sole practitioner, uh, immigration, criminal, and intellectual property. Well, intellectual property required engineering, uh, and I struggled with math in high school, so <laughs> not an option. Uh, criminal, uh, here's what I did. I went to the, like I said, old men in the village in criminal law and immigration law in Montreal, and I bottom-lined it in criminal I didn't like the retirement policy for the <laughs> brightest and the best in that field. Very often it was lead poisoning. <laughs> so I, I let that go. So in immigration, having chosen that path at the time, there was no such thing as an immigration law course. And uh, in the result, I decided to self-train. I uh, published uh, my first book um, in the last year of law school and made an arrangement with um, a trademark uh, firm, law firm in Montreal to do my articling or stagiaire as it's called in Quebec uh, in an office uh, rent-free. In exchange I do a file or two a month of immigration and uh, try to develop cash flow for my own client base and um, that's how things started. Huh, that is interesting. So <clears throat> I know um, your story is, is very similar to many others. You know, uh, you know sometimes it's circumstance, sometimes it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's chance. On rare occasions, it is a choice. And, you know, for, for me, I had an opportunity to work as an officer on the border, and that really drove my mm. decision-making in, in pursuing immigration. I, I, I found it intriguing to be on the opposite side 
And, uh, but really it's the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Now, now you contribute significantly to our bar. And one of the ways that you do that is through Lexspace. Ah. And I, I wanted just before we jumped into our main topic, <laughs> I, I wanted you just to talk a little bit about that, how, how that started, because I think that really wow. is one of the most common, um, you know, things that you've, you've done that, that people can attribute to you. Everybody recognizes that. Yeah, in the field they do. So for the listeners who aren't in the um, immigration practitioner field, Lexbase every month publishes summaries of federal court decisions in immigration and citizenship matters that had been released during the previous uh, 30 days. And um, what happens is that these summaries uh, are uh, sent to immigration practitioners across Canada, as well as operational and policy information obtained under access to information. Uh, So uh, it's the uh, largest publication of its kind in the country. And I think we're approaching year 28 or 29 in January. It's received uh, warmly by uh, our Canadian uh, visa officers and embassy staff, uh, the tribunals in Canada, federal and provincial immigration department officials, uh, and I think uh, the it's 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 uh, what is it now about six dollars a month? Yeah, I, I'm going to put I'm going to put a link in the show notes as well uh, to to people, and maybe I can get that from you where they can go to subscribe, and yeah, um, yeah. And, and for media, it's it's a lifeblood mm-hmm. line because uh, between myself and Lexbase, <laughs> literally it, put out in excess of 300 unique national news stories huh. uh, in immigration, which uh, is quite, quite a track record at this point. <laughs> uh, so it's one of those things where um, if you're practicing in immigration, it, it's a, almost a must-have. I agree. Uh, I agree. And it's interesting because on your bio, you list your hobby as keeping Ottawa honest. And (laughs) yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. It's even funny, but it's also serious Mm -hmm. because the way uh, uh, public servant corporate culture can act uh, is uh, based on the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, (laughs) It didn't fall. Yeah. And, and um, transparency uh, is critical. Uh, having access to the evidence or data that um, government officials use to formulate policy, that evidence and data belongs to the people of Canada. Yes. And very often public servants lose that view. So to keep them honest and, and to keep the political masters, quote unquote, honest in the sense that their uh, decisions must be revealed, should be revealed to the Canadian public. Uh, that's a, a, a combination game of whack-a-mole, cat and mouse, and never-ending uh, chase the tail of the dog. So it, it, it keeps me busy. Apparently, I'm among the highest volume requesters under our Access to Information Act uh, system in the country. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me at all. And I know um, in our firm, we definitely subscribe to it, and it's a wonderful resource. And uh, you know, for what you charge, for what you get, it's a, it's an it's an unbelievable. Like I, you know, I have to assume, you know, to a large extent, it's a labor of love that that it's you're a undertaking. Labor of love. 
And uh, <laughs> I know for, for all of us practitioners that rely upon it, um, yeah, it's just it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful resource. So okay. thank you for that. Oh, I'm I'm blushing now. Okay, thanks. <laughs> well, it's well <laughs> that praise is well deserved. Now let's shift gears and let's dive right into the meat of our topic today. The uh, the topic of what to do when your Canadian immigration application is refused. So let me set the stage a little bit here. Let's uh, let's say you're you're an immigration lawyer and uh, you're you're sitting at your desk and you know you, a, a consultation has been made with someone who comes into your office and they sit down and they're they're just shattered. They're just so upset. And, you know, this could be a situation where someone's in front of you or someone who's overseas that's, you know, calling through Skype or in this case, FaceTime, which has saved our podcast today because Skype wasn't working very well. But they, they reach out to you and, you know, they've got this look of just just complete hope, you know, hopelessness. And they say, my application was refused. I don't understand. Can you help me? How do you yeah. deal with that, Richard? Well, I put on the hat of practicality. Uh, you have to assess immediately whether there's truly anything that can be done uh, from a practical point of view. If it's the day before the wedding or worse, the funeral, practically you can't fix this. Uh, so that's for temporary status. For permanent status, typically uh, you have options in, in terms of the timing. So what to do? Well, let's look at temporary status issues because generally they cause the most stress and panic. Yes. Uh, and uh, whether it's for a visitor status or uh, a study permit or a work permit, it, it's, uh, it's difficult. So the first thing... Uh, is to uh, ask the fellow to PDF you or send you a copy of what was submitted to the visa office or what was submitted online or mailed, whatever it was, and take a look. Uh, more often than not, uh, the person did not receive professional advice prior to filing the application. And uh, generally, it's normal to see some gaps in the fence. Uh, there, were, uh, there ought to have been additional documents and information submitted with the application for consideration by that office. And if that's the case, and time permits, uh, the, the appropriate uh, outcome should be a mere consultation. Just explain to the fellow what's missing. And to, to, to resubmit. Now, in, in the resubmission, it should be properly prepared as if one were heading to federal court. Mm. Uh, the deal there is, uh, in federal court, one can only look at documents that were placed before the decision maker. You can't add on after the decision. So it's important for that second application to be as complete as possible, as clear as possible. And that second application should seek to address the reasons uh, that were provided uh, in, for the refusal. Um, so that's, that's the general overview and approach when it comes to receiving a refusal for temporary status in Canada. The next uh, Can I jump in is, for a second, yes, Richard? please do. Do you... Do you recommend that people do an ATIP request? Uh, 
and get oh, the yeah, that's real reasons? Be, uh, that, it, that, that'll, that'll turn on the um, time factor. Yes. If if there's if time is short, you're not going to have time to do an ATIP, mm-hmm. um, which is the access to information and privacy request. Uh, you, you, you're going to have to resubmit if if time is short. Mm-hmm. If the labor market impact assessment will sh- shortly expire, or if your school is about to commence, or if that wedding is happening, or whatever mm-hmm. family event is is on the agenda. Now, if if you if time is your friend and you have more time to prepare, you can electronically submit on the website of the Government of Canada for access to information. Just uh, use uh, Professor Google with the words "access to information Canada" in quotes, and you'll you'll be driven to uh, a very simple website uh, that allows you to submit electronically an access to information act request to obtain a copy of your electronic file notes. And that way you might get a better indication of why things didn't work out for you. It takes about 30 to 60 days, maybe more in some some cases, to uh, receive by email a PDF copy of these electronic file notes. So that that gives you some time to uh, prepare uh, another application for temporary status. Uh, time permitting. Uh, so let's say let's say that um, uh, you you've been refused and there's no time. Like I said, you can you can you can uh, stack on new documents and information. And instead of a new application fee, you can also request reconsideration. Uh, I I personally I I I do both. You can put reconsideration and submit all your documents, and you can also place. Uh, a brand new application, which costs another processing fee, uh, to to uh, create a second um, um, a second file, frankly, uh, and and uh, the reconsideration has no cost. It's highly discretionary, and normally you you it, you shouldn't do it if you were really missing information and documents. But if you think that you did send documents that uh, ought, that squarely address the reason for refusal, it's possible the document was not received or simply overlooked. In those cases, reconsideration is a practical possibility. Now let me let me let me just skyrocket to the next option for you. You're, where time is short, you only have a week or two before your family event, there is the option of the member of parliament or senator. Huh. And people overlook this one. 80% or more of a mem- federal member of parliament's job uh, boils down to immigration matters because that's why constituents contact or deal with members of parliament daily. Uh, the federal jurisdiction uh, is such that uh, immigration has the lion's share of people's concerns. Um, the Department of Defense matters, military matters, and, and other federal things like uh, whatever the guard variety vanilla topic of the day is, uh, <laughs> exist. But the overwhelming majority of constituent um, activity relates to immigration. So here's the golden key. Members of parliament and senators have a direct line, literally, into uh, the uh, Canadian immigration authorities. They can pick up the phone and they will receive 
virtual immediate service. They will find out what went wrong in your file. They can send new information and documents directly to the immigration uh, people, and it's free. Hmm. So a member of parliament and senator, uh, these are viable options where you've been refused um, temporary status in Canada, uh, and you need a repair done fast. Uh, very often, when time is short, I, I uh, will uh, cut and paste uh, an email to the person concerned to do precisely that. Contact the local member of parliament. Uh, and and uh, normally, um, there's family in Canada. The family in Canada uh, will know their member of parliament, who it is. And if not, uh, they go to the uh, website for uh, the Canadian parliament. There's a question, who is my MP? And you plug in your postal code and voila, they give you all the contact information you need for immediate huh. follow-up. So that's a, that's a nice, nice golden key that may resolve many of your issues if you're refused for temporary status. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So just to, just to emphasize again what you said, if you have a very urgent matter and you're seeking something like reconsideration, you can actually use the MP to assist you in getting that information before an officer or that request before an officer faster? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 there's preferred service. You see, what's, what happened was this. The big picture is this. Back in the 90s, um, the government of Canada at the time closed down most every uh, um, inland immigration office. And during the 90s into 2000, uh, etc., uh, the visa offices were, uh, were reduced in number. And then access to the visa offices were restricted when when uh, senior management decided to offload immigration to visa application centers. So at the end of this exercise, there was no direct access for all practical purposes um, for in the vast majority of cases with immigration people. The, the moat was built and that's that. And so what happened naturally is that people still needed uh, to deal with urgent matters. Um, even, uh, the system was created to offload the immigration uh, program onto the shoulders of the members of parliament. <laughs> and, and, and the offloading uh, could have been handled differently. If the members of parliament have a direct line to Immigration Canada, why not provide the same line or a parallel line to... Uh, the professionals who are regulated uh, federally, provincially uh, to practice uh, law or uh, immigration consulting. Uh, these individuals are highly trained in immigration. Uh, their mandate is to protect the public and they have a professional insurance against the uh, potential liability. So uh, you can achieve um, uh, fantastic cost savings to the government and can deliver uh, to the general public uh, the uh, emergency service that is denied uh, because of the closure of the visa offices overseas to the public and the inland service uh, centers uh, to the public. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really a question why uh, would uh, the immigration public servants continue to deny access to the communication line to lawyers. 
uh, when they're providing that service to the MPs. Uh, it's self-evident that uh, it is extremely valuable service because they're generating, they're driving the members of the public into the offices of members of parliament. And that's kind of unfair to the MPs. Uh, that, that, that wasn't in their job description when they were running for office. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the, as long as the MPs let the immigration officials get away with this, it's not going to change. What should happen is that just admit that lawyers are part of Canada's immigration system. Uh, tax lawyers don't have to fight uh, CRA for this. And I asked the members of parliament just recently, in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, in, in the standing committee, uh, can you tell me whether or not there's a direct line for case-specific information between your MP offices and the Canada Revenue Agency? And they went, well, no. I says, well, why is that? How is it that CRA uh, can provide uh, information and you don't have to deal with CRA problems, but you're dealing with immigration problems? So anyway, we're not going to solve that one today. <laughs> so, so just to, to keep that, that flow going, what was the response? Did, uh, did anyone uh, venture to, to explain? Yes, yes. Um, I think uh, if ever you're going to read a, a Hansard or listen to the audio or watch the audio visual, you, you go look at, I think it's uh, the, the December 12th uh, December 12th. at 4.30 p.m. Uh, at the Standing Committee of the House of Commons. It's on the website there because one member of parliament asked, well, how, how would you fix it? Uh, and, I, <laughs> and I paused and I went, well, there's started. really only one way. And what I would recommend is for the members of parliament to try to see a 20-year-old British television series called Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. <laughs> and all of the members of parliament instantly got the bait. And, and, uh, and I, I, would, I was uh, mulling over the last few days um, uh, sending uh, a note to the uh, clerk of the standing committee and to the, uh, the, all three parties that if they're willing to seriously uh, consider how to fix this, then I will be willing to attend an in-camera, not public, in-camera session of the uh, standing committee, which excludes members of the public and, of course, the, the departmental officials. I'll give them the playbook on how to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put a link. I'm going to see if I can track it down. And I'm definitely going to put a link to that as well in the show notes. The, uh, the, the, yeah, that, the, that Hansard. So that would be awesome. <laughs> So you've got oh, these, yeah. so you've got these individuals that now, um, at least those who didn't know previously, understand that the MP is an option to, to help with with seeking redress. Yeah, but moving forward, let's. What other options are there? And here's the thing: your um, federal court. Now, now, federal court should be the last resort. It usually is, but in today's world, it's required more and more. And that's because if Canada refuses you, uh, that refusal it will be accessible to like-minded Western democratic nations, such as the United States, Britain, France, Germany, you name it. And you may find um, uh, a Schengen visa refusal or refusal for a B1, B2 on the American side. Uh, and so you have to fight this when it's appropriate. Hmm. And here's the thing. Uh, what people don't know is, is statistically, 
if if uh, your lawyer is doing a, a proper screen of your case, you, you have a relatively good chance of resolving your refusal by taking the court route. Here's why. First, the stats. Um, the the uh, statistics show over the years that an immigration-related federal court case, not refugee, immigration, so temporary status refusal or permanent resident status refusal, those categories, uh, you end up with almost a 50% success rate. And, and that's, that's rather uh, interesting. So what happens is that um, one quarter of the cases typically will uh, receive a consent by our colleagues at the Department of Justice. You see, by filing the $50 judicial stamp and, and opening up a federal court case, uh, you access a Department of Justice lawyer. And that lawyer uh, is, is, is reasonable, hmm. highly trained professional, again, direct access to the immigration communication system. And if there's an egregious error or, or something that clearly looks like it just slipped off the rails, uh, the lawyer will recommend to the lawyer's client, the um, immigration authorities, to resolve the matter. And the matter is resolved with uh, a cancellation of the refusal and the reprocessing of the application by a different officer. And uh, that happens in one out of four cases statistically for uh, temporary status refusals that go to federal court as well and, and the um, um, immigration slash skilled workers, but not refugee cases. Right. Then if you get in, if you, if you then have leave granted, it turns out that one out of uh, another 25% using the same um, path are, are granted. Uh, or otherwise settled in your favor. Uh, so at the end of the day, that federal court track from beginning to end for these kinds of refusals that we're discussing, you got 50-50 shot. And so uh, it, it's really worth the option. Now, how does this work? Here's the fast, fast, fast explanation. Remember, it's not an appeal. Even if the judge would have determined your application differently, that's not the standard. That doesn't count. What counts is, is there a rational explanation? Is there a reasonable, almost possibility that based on the information and documents, an, uh, an immigration officer would make that decision? So um, remember, it's not a matter of weighing or reweighing the evidence. It's, it's something different. It's very difficult to prevail in federal court. But quite often, um, there's a problem. Here's an example. Uh, the uh, permanent resident application was refused because the officer said, you didn't give a current United Kingdom police certificate. The fellow was here in Canada since 2013 and uh, had provided a police certificate from 2014. Uh, and uh, because of the failure to provide that uh, police certificate, permanent rep application, permanent resident application refused. But the website of Immigration Canada says you don't have to give a police certificate uh, if uh, you're in Canada and the police certificate is uh, given after you've arrived in Canada. 
so the officer made a mistake. And uh, you, you can't, you, what are you going to do? You have to go to federal court. You can ask for reconsideration, which was done, but if they do nothing, you're stuck. Uh, and that's even more important in today's express entry system because uh, the rules can change at any time with no notice and with retroactive effect. So your federal court is a lock-in device to the points you had, to your invitation decision. Hmm. And uh, if, if you prevail in federal court with, by judgment or by settlement or, or by a notice of discontinuance because you've agreed on what will happen next, you're good to go. Uh, so it's it's uh, more and more a common avenue to take things to federal court. What stops people is that they think it's going to cost them a fortune uh -huh. to do it. They're watching too many American TV shows. <laughs> like I said, the immigration bar in Canada is among the most impoverished uh, <laughs> when it comes to lawyers. And I always recommend to young lawyers to not go into immigration law if they want to make a decent living. It's not going to happen. <laughs> So, uh, the federal court, um, uh, there's no, there, you, you, you have to, I see rates vary by city in this country, which is odd, but there you go. Um, I, uh, I, I know our office here, they'll uh, typically charge between 3500 and $5,500 all in, taxes, disbursements, service, you name it, huh. uh, and uh, typically uh, you can get away with uh, five, with uh, just um, about a half or three quarters of the payment in the beginning, and then leave the end part, the oral hearing part, if application for leave is granted. Because federal court is a two-step process. First, you need ap an application for permission uh, to go forward in the process. They call it an application for leave. And it's a screen. So Fed court reads everything and they go, you know what? I'm not sending this case forward to an oral hearing. I don't think uh, it's going to prevail. And the process stops there. But if leave is granted, you then proceed to an oral hearing a couple months later, more or less. And uh, that's when the lawyers appear in court. There are no witnesses, only affidavits. You get, you, the, the court gives you one hour to deal with your case and then one hour to the Department of Justice. That's it. So your costs mainly are uh, up front in the preparation for the application for leave because you need to submit an affidavit and, and do a memorandum of fact and law, which includes legal research and arguments, blah, blah. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's not such a significant price. The, I've asked other lawyers, and, and uh, the price can also go to 7500 or even 15000 It just depends on the law firm. Hmm. Uh, but for some, some things, like uh, some, some lawyers develop a subspecialty. I have what I call the email special. <laughs> because I've dealt with the same issue again and again and again, I never got the email. I never received that email. Uh, so I never sent the document. And my file is closed because they said I had to send the document. That's an email issue. So uh, because for me, it's almost a cut and paste, you can get every all in, it would be around 3000. Uh, so um, don't give up when your heart comes down to normal beat. Uh, just do some web searching. Uh, there are solutions out there. Uh, consider federal court as an option. Uh, and again, 
Um, what I do is I have people uh, uh, send me all of their material for review. Uh, very often I tell the individual, don't waste your money. I know it's a process. I know I would do uh, better as a business person <laughs> taking yeah. your money and proceeding. Yeah. But no, I think that um, your, your chances, it's just not worth it. If uh, I also have to maintain my own um, integrity with my colleagues at the Department of Justice, as yes. well as the officials at the Department of Immigration, <clears throat> Citizenship, Refugees. And you don't take on cases where uh, they're very weak right. and they, or they should not appear in court. Only take the very best forward. And so... Now, now uh, Richard, I have one yeah. quick question. I know listeners will be interested. Um, how long does it take for a judicial review to run its course? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the deal is uh, a lot of the time factor rests with the uh, respondent, the immigration people. Uh, you have, if it's an inland decision, you got to get your paperwork in within 15 days of um, the communication of the decision to you. 15 days is a short window. All you have to do is pay the $50 judicial stamp to open the case. That locks in your rights. If it's an overseas decisions, like from those visa application centers, it's 60 days. Uh, and here's the thing. <laughs> what if it's an online decision? Yeah. Is that inland in or, or overseas? Mm -hmm. And so the court administration policy at the present time is to treat online decisions as 60-day window decisions. Now, there's nothing in writing. No one's really argued this in front of a judge, but it is purely the administrative practice of federal court administration to treat these decisions as 60-day uh, decisions at any time. So if you're hearing this podcast, be careful. <laughs> that may have changed. So you've got to check. Uh, and again, remember, the magic of Canadian immigration law and policy is the... Uh, golden, what I call the Alice in Wonderland rule, we can change the rules at any time with no notice with retroactive effect. And there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so now, how long does it take? So you open your case. Now the immigration people are supposed to send you reasons for the decision because there are reasons maybe they haven't shown you. And uh, it typically will take two, three weeks, sometimes four weeks to get those. Once you get the reasons, the clock is back on. You have 30 days to put in what they call the application record. That's everything that you need in court for the uh, judge to make a decision whether or not to grant leave. And after you've done that, the respondent, the immigration people, will have 30 days to get their application record in. And after that, you got a 10-day window for what they call a reply. So 30, 30, 10, that's 40 days. Uh, after that, the decision goes to a judge to decide whether or not to grant leave. And they're pretty good about that. It can take, you know, a few weeks. Um, if it's taking longer, two months, sometimes 90 days, well, that generally bodes well for you because they're trying to schedule your case for oral hearing. Uh, and then you'll receive a, 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 a decision. And if it's going to be dismissed, the decision is dismissed. <laughs> People get very frustrated because there's no reasons why. Mm -hmm. It's just dismissed. And I took that to the Supreme Court of Canada and lost. 
So <laughs> right now, uh, decision dismissed is all you get. But if uh, the decision is to grant leave, then there's a whole timeline set down by the court for more affidavits, cross-examinations, examinations, um, and, and uh, you can put more argumentation into the mix. Uh, but typically, uh, within 90 days uh, of that decision, you're, you're in court. And after your argument, uh, you'll, you'll have a written decision um, within a week or a month, uh, usually not longer than that. Uh, and after that, remember, here's the thing, here's the thing, the visa office can refuse again. For a different reason. <laughs> People should be aware of that. It it doesn't happen often, but it's possible. And then what I do is I just go back to court. Um, and uh, I had to do that once or twice. Actually, I, over 20, 25 years, I think I, 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 it's happened three or four times. So it is possible, but highly unlikely. Hmm. Normally, the case just treads forward and gets done. Uh, so, uh, what, what's fun about it is that truly, if it's fallen off the rails, the colleague at the Department of Justice will make their judgment call as soon as you file the application record. So the real world practical delay is after you get reasons, if you can get your application record in quickly within a couple of weeks, the Department of Justice officials will review it because they don't want to do an application record for themselves, their client, if they don't have to. And they'll recommend their client just discontinue with you based on terms and conditions. So you can really turn this thing around in four to eight weeks. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, sometimes uh, if it's truly a, <laughs> like a smoke and egregious <laughs> uh, case of error, uh, you don't even have to file your application record. You, you shoot off um, your, your evidence to the uh, case management lawyer at the Department of Justice, and then they can uh, they can fix it, but just don't cry wolf uh, yes, if you're going to yeah. do that. So there you go. I mean, that, that's the federal court stuff. Huh. Well, that's wonderful. Well, we've 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 covered, I think, um, the the full gambit here. You know, concluding obviously yeah. well, with, if, with the MP. Uh, but are there other? Uh, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, we've discussed uh, for um, temporary status overseas. Same thing happens for temporary status inside Canada. Like a lot of cases are for temp regarding temporary status inside Canada. Um, restorations, I, I didn't get the decision, mm. they didn't get my upload, or um, uh, problems about uh, qualification for that postgraduate work permit, or the inland spousal stuff, you name it. Uh, there's all sorts of things that pop up, uh, and it's the same federal court deal. Uh, the fun part is that uh, for whatever reason, if you're in federal court on a temporary status refusal, uh, you become, at least in my experience, very, very, very low priority for the removal process. People panic that uh, they're gonna, uh, there's going to be a knock at the door and a frog march to the airport. Well, when a case is in federal court, typically uh, the removal people don't deal with it. Because once the case is opened, it's easier to go forward and request a stay of removal, which is a freezing of the removal process pending disposition of your federal court case. And so the uh, removal people have learned from experience that just doesn't pay <laughs> to go after a file that's in federal court. 
um, they, they can achieve their target for removals by uh, chasing lower hanging fruit. fruit. Mm -hmm. So that is another fantastic federal court option, especially if you're working, gainfully employed, because the longer you spend in Canada, the more income you have, as opposed to being outside Canada. So federal court is really a viable option if you're here and working. Hmm. Well, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> well, now other things that we left off the table, mm -hmm. media. <laughs> okay. Now we're getting to the fun stuff. Excellent. So here's, here's a, a hypothetical for you. Family class, the, the, the couple, um, um, a lady, uh, let's say in Vancouver with the, um, man, the gentleman, I should say in the United Kingdom, uh, both went through divorces, both have kids, both started a relationship, but those divorce proceedings um, in, in Canada and the UK take time. Um, after uh, uh, about a year, the, the, the lady in Canada files for sponsorship, overseas sponsorship, family, class, spouse, based on conjugal. They can't live together because there's an ocean apart and they can't marry because they're in divorce proceedings. And then um, they, as days of the divorce, they marry. They send the marriage certificate to the visa office. Visa office refuses, saying, <laughs> at the time of your application, you were in conjugal. You have a marriage certificate. We believe you're really married. We believe it's, it's real, not for immigration purposes. But because you started this case as a conjugal uh, and you're, you have a marriage certificate, you have to start your processing all over again. We refuse. Mm -hmm. That's a real case. And just before Christmas, this is the time of our uh, taping, uh, what a wonderful pre-Christmas media story. Because <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. Are you saying they're married? Is it not real? No. And, uh, well, why are you refusing? Well, they have to just reapply, but you have their whole file there and the marriage certificate. Well, we don't care. Yes. So media is an option if you have the right stuff. A case like this, two English-speaking, English-UK, photogenic young couple with wife crying, <laughs> wanted that Christmas yes, but got a Christmas call no from a visa officer who's stickly with the rules. Ooh, I like that. It's faster than court. You know, uh, and the, yeah, there you go. The thing that has amazed me the most over the last few years that I've practiced is how much public shaming within the media has shaped our immigration policy in this country. Well, that's it. I mean, um, the, the big picture and the fast reply is that immigration is uh, one of the top national issues. It is vital uh, in uh, securing and retaining the marginal swing constituencies in urban Canada. Uh, many of which are replete with Canadian voters from our cultural communities. Immigration is the sensitive issue to the swing vote in national politics in this country. And so the, all of the federal political parties are attuned to immigration uh, issues. It also is what drives eyeballs to newspapers and TV screens. So the media itself is seeking to connect with its audience and retain its audience, grow its audience, hence 
immigration is front row center in this country. Uh, and so um, it has to be managed. It has to be managed well. At, at some point, there were more spin doctors in Immigration Canada than visa officers. Uh, you include the speech writers and the media analysts and the, uh, you know, all of the talking people and the analytical people. It was scary. But that's because of the political strength the immigration dossier has in this country. Wow. Well, this has been just wonderful, Richard. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time that you've come <laughs> on. Just the insight that you've shared, it's been entertaining. I know that the listeners are going to absolutely love this podcast. And I'm uh, glad. I'm glad. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And feel everyone around the world contacts me by email. Forget yes. the phone. I don't use it. So just email me if there's anything. And yeah. uh, don't worry. Uh, it's cut and paste reply. And uh uh, if, and especially on that federal court stuff, um, it's worth it's, it's worth exploring uh, because that refusal sticks with you for all, for at least half a decade, a decade. Yeah. You, you got to push back. That's a very good point. Now, for all of these people that are now going to be rushing to your office <laughs> for assistance, what yeah. is the best way for them to contact you? You've mentioned email. What, what is your email address? Way. Forget okay. it. It's only email. It's, okay. it's Lexbase L. E X B A S E at can immigrate C A N I M M I G R A T E dot com. Lexspace at can immigrate dot com. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Richard. We'll be getting this podcast <laughs> probably out here in the next couple of days. So it's it'll be timely and relevant. And uh, <laughs> and I, I, I wish you all the best this this holiday season. Thank you. Have a safe, healthy, happy new year as well. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I don't know what more to say other than that was absolutely awesome. You know, just the credibility that he brings to the table, um, as you can see from his discussion about his interactions with House of uh, House of Commons Standing Committee on Immigration, um, the way he interacts with the media, one thing that permeates everything, despite how awesome he is and how much knowledge he has, is his compassion. The fact that he truly cares about people. And it wasn't uh, once, but maybe twice or three times he said, look, we as immigration lawyers don't get into immigration law because of the money. There's, there's money elsewhere. But this practice is reserved for people who care about people. And that message has been laced through every single interviewee that I bring on the podcast. And it doesn't matter what the topic is, whether it's economic immigration or family class or refusals on, on, on applications like this and how to deal with them. Um, it doesn't matter. You can see with every single immigration lawyer that comes on here that they genuinely care about people. So... I'm also super excited to announce that I've got a couple other awesome interviews that are coming through. I had the privilege um, of interviewing Carter Hoppy as well, and he will be coming up here in our next episode, episode two for season two, and then followed by Carter Hoppy will be Chantal Deloge. And uh, both of those topics, Carter's going to come and talk about immigrant investor stuff, which is really cool. When you bring on these seasoned immigration lawyers, they have so many stories, so much background that they share, so much context for the whole evolution of, of immigration that it's, it's just an amazing listen.
this. And, and you'd think, oh, immigrant investor, that's not terribly exciting. Well, Carter brought life to it. And he was phenomenal, just like Richard in this, in this, uh, this episode. And without, you know, casting any um, any any doubt about the third guest, Chantel Deloge? If you're just if you're to just look up immigration, um, generally Canadian immigration, uh, Canada, you know when it comes to the media, when it comes to um, just all kinds of different uh, uh, things that interact with immigration in our country, Chantel is right there. She is one of the preeminent preeminent up and coming, and I shouldn't say up and coming because she's already there. But she's the next generation, and uh, uh, in terms of uh, of immigration lawyers and just what she does, how much she gives back, and I'm excited to have her come and uh, and share some in, uh, some unique insight on residency obligations in the context of uh, of permanent residence um, in Canada. So that's what we've got lined up uh, here in the next few episodes. So make sure that you. You stay tuned and tune in. I'm going to probably try to release them a little bit quicker. Uh, I intended to get these out a lot sooner. As I indicated, I, the interviews were all done uh, before 2017, but just because of uh, family and life and uh, craziness that's happened within my practice, which I'll share a little bit more with you in, in later episodes, um, I, I wasn't able to get these out as quickly as I wanted to. But uh, that is it for this episode. Once again, I'm going to encourage you to go to the website, the Canadian Immigration Podcast.com website, um, and, uh, and, and subscribe if you haven't there. Uh, leave a, a, an, an email on my email list, and I'll try to get notifications out uh, with new episodes. Uh, but probably another great way is through iTunes, and you can find the Canadian Immigration Podcast in iTunes. Um, so please feel free to leave a review. If you have any suggestions for, for topics that we could cover, please send those my way. And above all, I want to wish everyone an amazing, wonderful 2017. I hope that it is truly the best. Um, and, uh, you know, in my case, I'm sure hoping it's a whole lot better than 2016, but, uh, the future is bright for, for all those involved with, uh, within immigration And uh, I guess that's it for this podcast. So signing off, wishing you all the best as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Yeah.
Yeah.